So what I would like to reflect on in the talk this evening is, is the nature of contentment. 2,600 years ago, exhausted by years of struggling and striving, the young, disheartened and somewhat disappointed Siddhartha recalled a time as a young boy when he was sitting on a hillside overlooking his father's land and watching a farmer plowing the fields. And he remembered that there had arisen in him a quite unexpected and unsought for, yet very powerful and sublime sense of contentment. A contentment in which there was no thought of going anywhere, no thought of getting anything, a contentment in which there was no sense of there being anything at all missing in that moment. And Siddhartha remembered that moment or that sense of contentment as really being pervaded with a very, very deep, a very profound sense of ease and joy and stillness. And it really was a moment of contentment. Now, that memory for Siddhartha, because you remember, you have to bear in mind at that time, you know, Siddhartha was into the whole path of asceticism and self-mortification and self-abuse and all of those kind of characteristics. But that memory was a powerful turning point for Siddhartha in his quest for liberation and freedom. Now, one of the things that that memory did was to make Siddhartha really look at what the difference is between aspiration and striving. But that memory also called upon Siddhartha to examine, to really look at these very powerful urges that had throughout his life been driving him to look outside of himself, to look to the future for happiness, for peace, for freedom. And that memory made him question whether the freedom that he sought for was really going to be born of something that he gained and attained, or whether that freedom he sought for was going to be born of what he was able to let go of. Now, throughout this teaching, uh, contentment as a practice and as a quality and as a cultivation is repeated time and time again. Contentment features so strongly in the teaching of, of metta, of kindness, of generosity, in descriptions of, of the liberated heart and mind, contentment appears in the forms of peace and joy. And to read you a, a poem by uh, uh, Chan Nun from long ago. She was called Blossom Nun. Um, 
She writes, the entire day I searched for spring, but spring I could not find. In my straw sandals, I tramped among the mountain peak clouds, home again, smiling. I finger a sprig of fragrant plum blossom. Spring was right here on these branches in all its glory. I would encourage you or invite you to reflect on whether you can remember any moment of deep contentment yourself. Perhaps today, was there a moment when you could just step outside and feel really deeply touched by the loveliness of everything around you? Was there a moment when you felt yourself able to relax into stillness, to feel the cooling of all the waves of agitation about where we want to go, what we want to become, what we want to get rid of? Can you remember a moment when all of that could cool and you could feel your heart unbinding and feel or connect with a very deep sense of ease? Perhaps you might be able to remember longer moments in your life when all sense of insufficiency or all sense of lack fades away. And when you've felt yourself able to be present in the presence of all things. Now what do those moments, and I think we can probably all, I hope, recall a moment, at least one moment, of contentment in our lives. But what do those moments, however brief they are, actually teach us about the nature of happiness and about the nature of unhappiness? Certainly the the Buddha speaks of contentment as the greatest of all blessings, The Dalai Lama says about contentment, if one cultivates simplicity, contentment comes. Simplicity simplicity is extremely important for happiness. Having few desires, feeling satisfied with what you have is very vital. Satisfaction with just enough food, clothing and shelter to protect you from the elements and finally There is intense delight in abandoning faulty states of mind and cultivating helpful ones. Now, I think sometimes, you know, I think I really want to look at what I mean by this and what is meant by this word contentment because I think sometimes we hear the word contentment in images of cows grazing in a field come to mind. But As a doorway to the very free heart, the quality of contentment we're speaking about here is not bovine contentment. And 
the quality of contentment we're speaking about here is not a prescription for resignation or surrender of aspiration. Instead, the contentment we're speaking about here is really a contentment of vitality, of aliveness, a beginning, really, of a life of freedom, of a liberated heart. Now, I want to spend just a few minutes just just really looking at the historical context for cultivating contentment. In which the historical context in which contentment was first spoken about. I'd like you to imagine what it was like 2,600 years ago when the very earliest Buddhist nuns joined the Buddha in a homeless life. And what it meant in that culture at that time where for a woman the only security the only status, the only safety a woman could have at that time would be within the confines of family and marriage. And without that, a woman was actually really without value. So in those early times, these, these women, young and old, would actually step out their doors and leave behind everything that promised safety and security. It was a rem- they were remarkable, courageous women. Because it wasn't then just swapping one lifestyle of safety for another one. To enter into the homeless life meant really yielding to a, a total sense of surrender and connectedness, where every mouthful of food they would eat, where every piece of clothing that they wore would actually only appear if offered by the communities around them. So, you could, you know, it'd be hard for us to do that, wouldn't it? <laughs> Even if we felt called upon to do so. It's quite hard to imagine that radical leap of, of trust and surrender that these women really made. But what the Buddha taught, actually, it wasn't just about, you know, leaving a life of safety into this homeless life, adopting a new identity. He really talked about that to be able to rest in in a contented heart was the key to that life being a life of peace, and freedom, rather than a life of desolation and deprivation. And this is just as true in reality for the nuns today as it was 2,600 years ago. Now, in those early days when the nuns would enter into the homeless life, they would be given instructions about what were called the four great contentments of a noble life. And the the first was to be content with any robe you were given, whether it was lovely or shabby, or even if you weren't given one at all. And even here, the Buddha cautioned against poverty conceit, you know, knowing the ingenuity of the human mind 
par- and I'm paraphrasing this, he said, don't, just, don't think that just because you're contented with any old robe, it makes you a better nun than Sally down the robe, road who has a very fine robe. Mm-hmm. He said, be content with any food you are given, whether it's a gourmet dinner or scraps from the table, or even if you're given no food at all. He said, be consent, content with any lodging you are given, aware of what, what lodging is for, not worrying if you are giving no lodging at all. You know, could you imagine if the world followed these? You know, you could imagine the smiles appearing on, you know, airline reservation agents, you know, retreat managers, hotel receptionists, you know, people all over the world would suddenly be getting all this hap- much happier. But the fourth of the great contentments. But, but again, in each of these, the Buddha cautioned against, against conceit, not using contentment to judge others. But the fourth of the contentments was to really discover the happiness born, as the Dalai Lama talked about, of letting go of those states that really don't serve you well. And in discovering the qualities of heart, that really do serve you well and contribute to the freedom of your own heart. Now, I think clearly what the Buddha was pointing to in these, in these sp- talks about contentment was a, a question of attitude, a question of how we relate to the world and relate to all things. He wasn't speaking about a contentment of endurance or deprivation. He wasn't speaking about the cultivation of misery, but actually the cultivation of joy. Now, when we hear this, I think it, you know, the thought could arise, well, this is all very fine when we're talking about nuns and the monastic life, but what does this teaching of contentment actually mean for us as as lay people? And I think it means something very profound. Because I think this teaching of contentment is really not about what we have or don't have. I think this teaching of contentment is really no longer agreeing to the world of conditions, whether it be food or clothes or experience or identity, no longer agreeing to the world of conditions being the gatekeeper of our happiness and freedom. And I think that's the really radical teaching in contentment. Let me go into this about If you think of any single moment when you're wrestling with the world of conditions, you know, with the weather, it's too hot or it's too cold or it's too rainy, you know, with the food, there's too much or there's too little or it's too rich or it's too plain, you know, with your roommate, you know, why isn't she more mindful, you know, why isn't she less mindful like me, you know, then we would get along. If you're wrestling even with your cushion, you know, I don't have the right cushion, I need this kind of cushion, If you think of any moment when you're wrestling with the world of conditions, I need this, I I can't bear this, I must have this, I must get rid of this, have you noticed we become immediately unhappy? It's to instantly suffer. 
And what we are experiencing in those moments is the suffering of discontent. Now, we need to be very careful about this because, we, you know, the shadow side of this is endurance. You know, and the shadow side of this is a kind of passivity in relationship to the world of conditions. You know, everything's fine and it's just me that it's a problem. But that's actually not true. You know, sometimes things, things are not fine. Sometimes we need to engage with the world of conditions. But what we're really talking about here is the difference between engaging skillfully with the world of conditions and engaging with the world of conditions from a place of fear and aversion and helplessness. Now, I think one of the real kind of real jewels, I might say, of the Buddhist teaching, but one that is very hard to embrace is that none of the conditions in the world ever have the power to project us into distress and anxiety and into a sense of insufficiency. It is a power that is given to the changing, unpredictable, uncertain conditions. Now, again, you know, it, it would an objection, I think, that would be realistic to raise here is that, okay, this is a fine teaching if you're middle class, you know, and you have enough around you, you know, to have comfort and you don't have to worry. But what is it like, you know, if you are living in, a, in a, an impoverished situation, you know, of, of genuine hardship? But I think it's very important to remember that the Buddha gave this teaching not to the middle class, who had everything. The Buddha taught this teaching in the midst of the most dire poverty, in the midst of greatest deprivation in India at that time. So we need to examine it carefully. I think what the gist of this teaching is, that the source of joy and the source of sorrow, the choice source of contentment and the source of discontent, live within our own hearts. That doesn't mean that the world of conditions is fine, but our response to the world of conditions very much lives within our own heart. Kabir wrote about this in a poem. When he said, I said to this wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river road and no road. Do you see anyone moving about on that bank or resting? There is no river at all, no boat and no boatman. There is no tow rope and no one to pull it. There is no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no ford. There is no body and no mind. It's kind of strange. But then he says, do you believe there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty? In that great absence, you will find nothing. Be courageous, then, and enter into your own body. There you will have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this, Throw away the thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. I think that capacity to stand firm in that which we are is the beginning of contentment. If we think about all those moments when we're waging war with the world of conditions 
I think it's useful to step back and to think all those moments of discontent, they're kind of like the fourth heavenly messenger, you know, the path of freedom waving at us from the crowd and saying, it's time to stop. It's time to look where the source of joy and the source of sorrow truly lives. Every moment we feel those surges of distress. You know, I I can't bear this. I like this. I need this. It's almost like those surges have written upon them this, this reminder, this invitation to be a little bit stiller and to be in that stillness a little bit more aware where we are delivering the calmness and sufficiency of our own hearts into the hands of conditions that we can't always control but that we can make peace with, that we can understand. Contentment, I think, is, is not a state or a feeling. It's not something static like that. For me, in my understanding, contentment has much more to do with what we choose to do with our attention. And I think you, you can understand that in your own mind, in your own heart today. What we choose to do with our attention Have you ever noticed how easy it is to feed discontent? You know, like somebody annoys you, like just one little moment of annoyance, or you annoy yourself, as came up in the question period today. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to feed discontent? You know, as we make our long list of what is wrong with that person, what is wrong with us, you know, what we need to become, what we need to get rid of. It's like fanning a fire, isn't it? And it's almost like with every moment of feeding, we're becoming increasingly unhappy (laughs) and becoming increasingly uh, discontented. And yet, doesn't it feel almost like an addiction to feed discontent? But it's, it's being aware that we can choose. One of the greatest freedoms we have in our lives is choosing what we actually do with our attention and what we actually feed. Because we can, in those moments, in being aware of discontent, also explore the possibility of just returning to just where we are, to calm the waves, to sense the possibility of also cultivating and feeding contentment. David White has that wonderful short poem called Enough. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, sitting here. This opening to the life that we have refused again and again until now. Until now. Now, 2,600 years ago, the Buddha identified the force of craving as one of the very few powerful forces that held the power or holds the power to dispossess us of freedom and to cause immense struggle and suffering and distress in our lives. The Buddha likened craving to a thief that takes up residence in our heart and the mission of that craving is to convince us of insufficiency to convince us of our insufficiency. Stealing 
contentment and freedom. And in a very real way, blinding us to our capacity to see the peace and the freedom that is available to us in each moment. Sending us instead to roam and prowl the world for what we believe to be lacking in ourselves. Now, the Buddha had, you know, a whole lot to say about craving. Not much of it was particularly good news. <laughs> Described it as a kind of poison that leeches joy and happiness from our hearts and relationships, as a fire that consumes everything in its path. And very helpfully, the Buddha provided a roadmap of craving, which I hope you won't find too dep- depressing but that we can follow this roadmap of craving in our own hearts and lives because there's nothing theoretical about this. You know, the craving for sense pleasure, it's a short list. As you know, Buddhist teaching is full of very long lists. This is a real short list, you know. The craving for sensual pleasure, the craving for becoming, and the craving for non-becoming. So let's look a little bit at the first one, the craving for sensual pleasure. Notice it is the craving for sensual pleasure. Now, today, you know, there are countless moments of extreme pleasure in all of our days. There are countless moments of loveliness in each day. You know, you think of today, the sound of the birds, you know, the sun, the, 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 the beauty around us, sometimes even the loveliness of our own mind. You know, the pleasant, the pleasant thoughts and emotions of kindness, of, of generosity, in, of empathy. And it's so important for us to be able to appreciate and delight in the moments of loveliness because they gladden our hearts. They bring a sense of spaciousness, a sense of sensitivity and connectedness. And sometimes I find that too many people in practice almost feel afraid of the lovely, as if it's somehow a more noble or more virtuous path and practice if we spend every possible moment in the day grappling with suffering. You know, you can feel it's a little bit more noble. You know, like a friend of mine said, you know, sometimes a, a colleague of mine said, you know, he looks around on retreats and, and, and sometimes looks at people, you know, a re- group of retreatants doing walking meditation. He says, like the march of the condemned, you know. And I know sometimes that's just appearance. You can look very serious and actually be delighting in every step. But the lovely is part of the fabric of our life and experience, you know. And in many ways, you know, don't you see how you get a real taste of contentment in the lovely? You know, how you can get a real taste of contentment. Contentment. And, you know, the pleasant has never, ever been a problem or an obstacle. And yet, so, you notice how something else creep, can creep in, you know? Like you can step outside and, and open your eyes and you see the loveliness, the beauty of nature around you. And then the thought arises, I bet it's even more beautiful from the top of the hill. You know, it's kind of like, oh, it's not quite, you know, that, there's that second thought that's not quite enough, you know? Uh, you know, you can have a delightful meal, and Spirit Rock often specializes in delightful meals. 
And you know, you can, you can get that delightful meal and then the thought can arise, well, you know, that was so good. You know, tomorrow I'm going to get to lunch early so I can be first in the line for seconds, you know. And already the mind is trying to freeze that lovely into something static, something mine. You know, you can have a thought about a person that you really enjoy, you know, that you really like. And you so enjoy it that it seems a good idea to have lots more good thoughts about that person. And, you know, maybe even a few fantasies or daydreams or or plans. And pretty soon you've kind of moved away from the intimacy of that first just simple appreciation of the lovely. So... You know, I, I teach in Switzerland once a year, you know, in this, this center, you know, you think it's beautiful here, it is beautiful here. The place where I teach in Switzerland, you know, it's high up in the mountains. You have this view of the, the Alps, you know, like you sit in the meditation room and there's a view of the Alps. And, you know, a, a, a yogi once said to me, they came back the second year and they said, you know, I came back because I remember just how gorgeous it was here last year, but somehow it just doesn't look as pretty this year. You know, and I was pretty sure the Alps hadn't changed that much in that one year, but somehow it was the mind feeding on what was rather than that freshness of just seeing what is what is and connecting with what is. We can even begin to employ craving as a way of fixing suffering. This is very, you know, this is kind of quite a strong syndrome, I think, maybe in our culture, maybe just in human beings. You know, you have an unpleasant mind state, if you might notice it, you have a difficult sitting or a difficult body experience, and how quickly the thought comes in that I'm going to fix this by getting something pleasant. You know, I'll turn on my phone, I'll open the fridge, you know, if I was at home, I might turn on the TV. When we don't see craving as being the cause of suffering, we do very often compound suffering by trying to use craving to get rid of suffering. That's really, I think that's really important to see in our own minds. When we don't see craving as being the cause of suffering, we try to use craving to get rid of suffering, and actually we suffer much more because it's endless, isn't it? Then it's kind of this endless quest, you know, that always leaning forward. Now, the craving for sensory pleasure, it's a curious one because it's not just about the pleasure. I think it's much more about feeling that we can only be happy and at peace and sufficient when we are in contact with the pleasant. And that if we're in contact with the unpleasant, then we're somehow doomed to distress and, and imbalance and fear. But the attempt to try and create a world where we only have pleasant sensations, I'm sure we would all agree, is pretty much doomed to failure. And yet that doesn't stop us trying. That's the curious thing. In in those moments when we feel ourselves always leaning towards what we don't have, contentment can feel very far away. But I think it's really a question, important to question, is that actually true? Is contentment perhaps right here? By cooling the fires 
of the, that need, that sense of, of must-have by being still. Again, that poem from one of the elders in the, Chan, in the Chan tradition, the nuns in the Chan tradition. She said, she wrote, Spring morning on the lake, the wind merges with the rain. Worldly matters are like flowers that fall only to bloom again. I retire to contemplate behind closed doors, a place of true joy. While the floating clouds come and go, the whole day long. Let's look at the second craving, the craving to become. I suspect that we can all remember from our childhoods the various fantasies we entertained about who we wanted to become in this life. You know, and they were usually about perfection. You know, the perfect partner, the perfect relationship, the perfect artist, popular, successful, safe. Now, many of these fantasies, of course, are probably just distant memories. But in the moment, we don't always see how discontented we can actually be with who and how we are right now. And it's almost like a kind of existential discontent, the feeling of not being enough, not being good enough, not being good enough in our mind, not having been good enough in our bodies. And those moments of not feeling good enough really launch us into the craving to become, the craving to become the person who has a certain kind of experience the craving to become the person who has a certain kind of body, a certain kind of mind, a certain kind of of heart, a certain kind of impression in the world. And that craving to become, of course, immediately has the effect of divorcing us from what is being experienced in the moment. It's a movement into rejection. It's a movement into abandonment. But it's also, it's not only a movement away from what is, it's a movement away from acceptance and kindness and compassion. And again, it's easy to try and use craving as a solution for what we don't like in ourselves, for who we don't like ourselves to be. You know, and I I see this a lot in practice. You know, I see, you know, the frustration you sometimes experience in meditation when things just don't seem to be going your way, which is probably about 99% of the time, you know, things just don't seem to be going our way. And especially, you know, we we can have this thought pattern that arises, you know, I'm an experienced meditator. I shouldn't be falling asleep because I'm an experienced meditator. I should be the meditator who's always bright, who's always alert, you know, who's a shining example for everyone around me. It's not just a meditation. I want to be perfect. You know, I want to be still. The, the list is potentially endless about what we feel we need to become. To be the kind of person who has a certain kind of experience, a certain kind of image, a certain kind of 
presence and to fear that we're going to be a failure if I'm not kind enough, not generous enough, not perfect enough, not, not supportive enough, not compassionate enough, that somehow I'm a failure. It's the craving to become is so often coexisting with the craving for non-existence, the craving for non-becoming. I mean, in its most extreme form, the craving for non-becoming is the craving for death. You know, it's the most extreme form. At times it is the attempt to die. It is so much the pain of wanting, needing something to go away, to be annihilated, to stop. Now, there's a whole spectrum of that craving for non-existence. You know, it can be something so small as, you know, the person who's shuffling beside us, you know, I want this to go away, I need this to go away, but it can be so much more profound in terms of wanting my experience to go away, which is kind of like saying wanting me to disappear. Wanting me to disappear. It's the fear of not being able to bear the fear of being overwhelmed, the fear of being lost, the fear of being disappointed, and it usually manifests in this kind of aversion. Now, when we begin to track the movement of craving in a single day in our mind and heart, at times I think it can seem so pernicious and so pervasive that it can feel almost inconceivable that it could end. We could say, what would our life look like What would our heart look like? What would our mind look like in the cessation of craving? But you know, this is what we're invited to imagine in this path. The Buddha often speaks of nibbana or liberation as the blowing out of the fires of craving. And he's not talking about some ultimate breakthrough experience at some distant moment, but as a practice of cultivating practice of cultivating contentment in the face of all the surges of craving that urge us to pursue something that we feel we don't have to get to get rid of. In all those moments, we find ourselves leaning forward into the future that hasn't arrived, seeking to become something we believe we are not, denying what is. These are the moments where we learn to cultivate contentment to calm, to come back, to be here, knowing that those moments are actually the path of unhappiness. It's very important to understand that this cultivation of contentment is not a sacrifice of aspiration. You know, cooling the fires of craving is not a sacrifice of aspiration. All the very wholesome desires all the very wholesome longings that bring you here, that lead you to do everything that is really, (coughs) you know, noble and and worthy and, and in your life and in your relationships. Your longing, your aspirations for peace, for love, for freedom, for connectedness. Contentment is not asking you to sacrifice any of those aspirations. And in truth, those aspirations are not separate from the fabric of contentment. Again, a a poem from one of the Chan nuns, 
where she says, I urge those of you who aspire to enlightenment. In aspiring to enlightenment, be diligent. If your mind is not completely sincere, you will wallow forever in the bitter sea. The great earth is vast and without limit, and sentient beings are too many to count. Yet how many people are there with the sense to leap out of the bitterness of samsara or the walking in loops of craving? Now, I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that we don't always see craving as craving, but what we do see much more easily is agitation and restlessness. You know, when the mind feels so full of, you know, thoughts and plans and the eyes are prowling the world and your body feels so hard just to be still, all those moments of agitation, you know, when we feel impatient and frustrated and judgment, this, this agitation is actually kind of like the visible face of discontent. But if we're willing in those moments of agitation just, just to look beneath that first layer of agitation and ask, what is the root of agitation? Probably you'll see craving. The craving to become, the craving to get, the pra- craving to get rid of. And if you look underneath craving and ask what is the root of craving, you'll probably notice that it is the belief in insufficiency. That is the sense of insufficiency in ourselves. And if we can find the collectedness in ourselves to look the surges of craving and agitation in I agitation in the eye, we'll probably see the anxiety of me really central to all those searches. The anxiety of me that is really built on insufficiency, because that's the belief system of the anxiety of me, that I'm not enough, that I don't have enough. And you know, this goes really right to the heart of the teaching of liberation, because If the anxiety of me is really believed in, if it's left unquestioned, then discontent and its offspring of agitation are going to follow just like night follows day. It's a simple, but I think not an easy truth, that if we don't make our home in agitation, if we don't follow its waves, if we don't make our home in craving and don't follow its waves, If we don't make our home in the belief of insufficiency, what we are really then looking towards is what the Buddha described as a heart that is luminous and radiant, without boundaries. Essentially, you know, it's a step into homelessness in its truest sense. A step into that sufficiency which really doesn't rely upon anything. Now, I would mention that in an ideal world, we would first discover that radiant, luminous heart, discover this unshakable contentment, and in the light of that discovery, all the layers of agitation and craving would just quite naturally fall away. Now, perhaps for some extraordinary yogis, it happens in that order. Not very many. I don't even know if I've ever met one. <laughs> but for the rest of us, we're asked, to fa- asked first to cultivate contentment. 
to unbind our own hearts from the grip of agitation and craving by, you know what, making a commitment to contentment. Now, one of the ways that that belief of insufficiency manifests, in another way it manifests, is very much in the form of doubt. That's often how insufficiency manifests. Doubt, self-doubt. You may have had a few thoughts about this today. You know, I can't do this. You know, it's too much. I have no idea why I'm here. Seemed like a good idea yesterday. You know, and now I have absolutely no idea why I'm here. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm sure this isn't the right path for me. I'm sure I can't do this. Everybody else is a perfect yogi, but not me. It's just all too much. I'll never make it. You may have had a thought or two like that today. And notice how self-doubt expands into doubt in the path. Doubt, but more doubt. You know what that doubt is about? It's really about doubting our own genuine, the genuine possibility of the profound transformation of our own hearts. It's a hard-won doubt. It's doubt in our own capacity And you know what doubt does? And this is the toxic loop. Like you may have noticed this today. Like if you have a lot of doubt in yourself or a lot of doubt in your capacity, it makes us waver, doesn't it? It weakens our intention and commitment. You know, it's, and then, and then, you know, it's like like today, you may have got up this morning, you know, with the intention to have a really, really dedicated day, you know, and then you have one sitting and one walking, you know, where your mind and body are completely uncooperative, and suddenly you know that you have a lot of much better ideas, you know, like a hike would be better, you know, a nap would be better, you know, even, you know, folding my socks would be better than doing what I'm doing. You might go into a walking with the intention to have a really sustained walking period, you know, and then again, you know, you can feel the doubt come, come in when your mind is uncooperative. And again, you know, oh no, you know, maybe I should just go read a book, you know, or go space out somewhere. But doubt is then feeding off this hidden belief in insufficiency. And doubt makes us waver, but then every time we waver, we're actually feeding that belief in insufficiency and incapacity. It's a kind of toxic loop that goes round and round. So what do we do with that? Where does it stop? It's not about suppressing doubt. It's not about ignoring doubt. And there's lots of doubt that is very helpful in this tradition, but not self-doubt. Self-doubt is never helpful. In reality, we start by actually learning to really honor and nurture our own intentionality and our own commitment. And perhaps, you know, we just commit to one breath. Perhaps we just commit to one step. Perhaps we just commit to being fully present in one moment. And every time we do that, it's almost like we're stepping into the unfamiliar. It's almost like we're stepping out of the belief in insufficiency. And we're honoring and strengthening that capacity for intentionality in our lives, which actually is a vote of confidence in our own sufficiency, rather than a vote for insufficiency. Every time we do that, we may just begin to get a sense 
that contentment is really not that far away. That capacity just to rest in that one moment. So I really encourage you during this retreat to really really contemplate what contentment means for you. To really contemplate where you might find it. To contemplate whether you might find contentment within your own heart and whether that contentment is just this glimpse of sufficiency. It's a glimpse of not being a hostage of conditions. And it's a real glimpse of that sense, that capacity for freedom within ourselves. And I'd like to, to end with a, a poem by an uh, elder in this tradition. It's kind of like a warrior poem. It says, when the thundering storm cloud roars out in the mist and torrents of rain fill the paths of the birds, nestled in a mountain cave, the nun meditates. No greater contentment can this, than this can be found. When along the rivers the tumbling flowers bloom in winding wreaths adorned with verdant color, seated on the bank, glad-minded, she meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When in the depths of night in a lonely forest, the rain David drizzled, uh, drizzles and the fanged beasts cry, nestled in a mountain cave, the nun meditates. No greater contentment can this be found. When restraining herself and her wandering thoughts, dwelling in a hollow in the mountain's mist, devoid of fear, she meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When she is happy, unobstructed, unencumbered, unassailed, she meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. If we could just sit together for a moment quietly and then we'll go into a walking period. Thank you for your attention. I know it's quite hard on the first night just to be upright. <laughs>